Welcome to That Smart Hustle, a podcast for women who are ready to step out of society's expectations, discover their sole purpose, and work their light. I'm your host, Kristen Martin, a full-time author and creative entrepreneur. My mission is to impact as many women as possible to go after the very things that set their souls on fire. If you're ready to stop playing small in a world that is desperate for you to play big, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to That Smart Hustle podcast and welcome to episode 87. Today on the show, I am so excited to introduce featured guest Kate Swoboda. Kate is the creator of YourCourageousLife.com, director of the Courageous Living Coach Certification at TeamCLCC.com, and author of The Courage Habit, How to Accept Your Fears, Release the Past, and Live Your Courageous Life. She helps individuals, teams, and companies see where old fear-based habits have kept people stuck or started to limit what's possible for an organization, and then start creating more courageous lives by getting into the courage habit, a four-part process for behavioral and organizational change. Kate has appeared in Mind Body Green, Entrepreneur, USA Today, Forbes, Business Insider, and more, and her website, Your Courageous Life, was named a Top 50 Blog for Happiness by Greatest. She's spoken at conferences and seminars on the topic of courage as it relates to personal development, releasing overwhelm, increasing emotional resilience, and healthy goal setting using habit formation techniques. This chat you're about to hear when it comes to accepting your fears and living courageously is one you certainly won't want to miss. So without further ado, I give you Kate Swoboda. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. To kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and how you got started with your courageous life? Mm -hmm. Well, my story is one that I think a lot of people find pretty familiar, right? Like, you know, did all the things to get into the job, you know, got the grades and went to school and, uh, you know, then got into um, salary job, the one that I had trained for, and then kind of realized like, oh, this is, this is not where I should be. And it's slowly <laughs> sucking my soul away, <laughs> which you and I were kind of chatting about before we, we got started today. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> um, and frankly, found it really terrifying. Because if all my best thinking and all the smarts and hard work, certainly I don't think I'm the most intelligent person on the planet, but I've, I've got a, a, a marble or two. And if all that smarts, all those smarts and all that hard work and all of those A's and all of that achievement had been the best that I knew to do, and yet somehow I had ticked off all the boxes and found myself in a position that just was not fully alive. Well, now what? Like, how do I even trust myself was really at the heart of a lot of that fear. And at first I put all of my, you know, smart girl uh, efforts towards trying to figure it out. You know, I dutifully journaled and read career books and, and things like that. And then what started to emerge was that I really had to just be comfortable with being afraid. Mm 
And then that ended up becoming, you know, <laughs> a huge part of the journey is like, oh, okay, so fear is here. I need it not to control me, but it's going to ride sidecar because I'm not, I'm not going to outsmart this. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's, you know, part of the path to how I found my way to coaching. And, um, you know, the, that work to look at fear really came in handy because fear is something that I continue to keep working with, you know, built my coaching business from, you know, one client at a time to now being the director of a life coach training and certification program called the Courageous Living Coach Certification. My, you know, childhood dream of writing a book finally came true. My book is called The Courage Habit. It came out last year. And even just this year, Book Riot was like one of the top books on habits. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it was, it's just, oh, the day that I got the book deal, I was just calling all my friends and screaming and crying. (laughs) And it's all the amazing things. And I still get super excited when I see it in a bookstore when, somebody puts a selfie of the book, um, up on social media and things like that. And, um, yeah. And, and fear has, and really looking at how we cultivate courage, true courage, not like just grit your teeth and do it anyway, courage, but like the kind of courage that's all about, um, being authentic about the fact that you get afraid that's the kind of courage that I'm really, really interested in. And so I, you know, I'm very like, yeah, I still get afraid, but I use tools to work with it. And I help other people to uh, learn those tools and access them in their lives as well. So that's me. That's so great. That's so great. And I know my audience resonates with that so much, especially when it comes to being creative, putting yourself out there and writing books. So speaking of your book, The Courage Habit, um, could you walk us through There's this process in there about cue, routine, and reward. So could you walk us through that process of how how our fear-based habits are formed? Totally. So I, I always put the disclaimer out there that if any, you know, brain surgeons are listening, I'm going to drastically simplify the processes of the brain when I talk about this. But uh, habit formation is predominantly controlled in a part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And I like to think of the basal ganglia as being like the brain's project manager. Stuff is coming at it. And the brain is trying to decide, this part of the brain is trying to decide, of course, in coordination with other parts of the brain, what do I do with it? And so when things come up that we are afraid of, when we are pitching ourselves out and we're afraid of getting rejected, when we have a lot that we want to do, like a lot of ideas, but it feels really overwhelming to execute them, that is stimuli for the brain. The brain's trying to go, well, what is it that I do with this? Those are cues. And those cues of fear, you know, the brain has to figure out what to do with it. So it moves into a certain response. And if the brain notices that that response seems to lessen stress, then the brain goes, ah, reward. Let me remember that and do that again next time. And if the behaviors that we always chose in response to life's challenges were like perfectly functional, helpful behaviors, that would be like the best system ever. But unfortunately, the brain is interested mostly in what will reduce stress in the short term. So if you've ever wondered to yourself, how is it that I have this long to-do list of stuff and then I totally go into a mode of, uh, you know, Netflix and chill? And I get avoidant and I procrastinate. 
Well, because in the short term, your brain is like, whew, this really decreases the stress. I feel the cue of fear. I go into a routine of being avoidant. And then I get this reward of less stress. Long term, not so very helpful for building the life of your dreams. (laughs) So what we want to do is we want to look at that cue routine reward. And we want to get really conscious what's my routine? What's the response that I habitually go into when I'm confronted with my fear to get that easy short-term reward? And how do I instead notice when that response comes up and use some kind of intervention? And in The Courage Habit, I talk about, you know, I didn't invent any of this. This is what the research says. These are the behaviors that cultivate emotional resilience. And the idea is that we interrupt the the fear-based habits that lead to those short-term rewards so that we can instead replace them with those courage-based habits that are going to lead to the longer-term resilience and feeling like, you know, it's kind of nice to get to a to-do list and go, yeah, it feels like I have a lot, but okay, deep breath, one thing at a time. It's like, that's what we're looking for with our to-do lists. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I, I get so bad about my to-do list because I feel this overwhelming pressure sometimes. I know a lot of my listeners do too, when things are left undone and you feel like you almost didn't do enough. And I've also found that with my, I think my cue, like when I have fear kind of creeping in a little bit, I go straight into procrastination. And that's usually in a form of distraction, which for me is always cleaning my house. Because the minute I start cleaning something, I get obsessive about it. And then I just keep going and going and going. And then suddenly it's six o'clock at night and it's dinner time and I haven't <laughs> done anything. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a really common. I, I actually, I, I stress clean as well, but usually yes. only if my husband and I are having an argument, which means <laughs> on the good side, I don't do a lot of cleaning, <laughs> but on the bad side, that's kind kind of the only time that I'm really motivated to clean is if I'm ticked off at him and I'm like, all right, well, fine, I'll clean the kitchen because I'm mad. (laughs) I find it's such a stress relief and it's something, I think it's also too, I know that I have a little bit of a control complex. So I think a lot of it is self-awareness and being able to clean and know exactly what the result is going to be. It makes me feel like I'm in control and I constantly have to remind myself like, it's fine. It's fine to not be in control and you don't have to control everything. I would much rather be in flow than trying to force things. And like we were talking about earlier with resistance, um, yeah, the minute I, I kind of go into that forceful state where I'm trying to make things happen or trying to control things, I totally block off that flow and that intuition. So <laughs> oh, I, I like, so your wisdom, like seriously, like any, any, any of your people, who are joining you for Elevate or who are listening to you right now. I mean, like this is, you know, you just described Q routine reward, like right there. And, and it's so great that you're sharing that, that transparency and that recognition of like, oh, like in the short term, it just gives me that feeling of control because I feel stressed out. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. But then in the long term, you know, you're cleaning all day, which <laughs> that's not what you were put on the planet to do. So. <laughs> oh, amen to that. That is so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you specifically say that um, you don't believe in being fearless or silencing fear or trying to get rid of fear, which I know is a mindset that myself and my listeners can totally relate to. So if we're not getting rid of fear, what do we need to be doing with fear instead? 
understanding it. Because fear is not an enemy. And I think there's like a ton of machismo in the self-help world. Like fear is the enemy, must be defeated. You must be a warrior against your fear. And it's just like, no, actually, it's, it's a, I think, very, very different. Um, fear is a wound, you know, like, like we don't turn to fear-based behaviors because we're feeling all shiny and happy and, or, you know, like we don't turn to fear-based behaviors when we totally know that we're capable and we're coming from a place of love and acceptance of who we are and a willingness to, uh, be compassionate with ourselves if we make mistakes or if we're rejected or if we're criticized. And I think that it's really important that we start working with this understanding of fear simply by how we relate to it. There's a lot of kicking fear's ass and telling fear to F off and shut up and go away. And in fact, there, there, you know, when I was writing The Courage Habit, I was looking at relational theories of how we relate to one another because I was thinking about, you know, how we relate to our fear can often mirror how we relate to people we're in conflict with. And I came across the the writing of, of an early feminist theorist, um, Karen Horney, who talked about how, you know, we relate in relationships that are in conflict by, you know, avoiding, placating, or attacking. And I thought, oh, that's so true. That's what people do with fear. They either try to avoid it, like, oh, no, 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 I'm not listening to you. <laughs> or they try to placate it, which is this this way of trying to like do life exactly perfectly so that it won't come up. Those are the people, like if anybody listening, if you've been a person, like you have to research everything before you can make a move. It's like, that's, that's very much in that vein. And then there's attacking it, which is like the kicking fears ass and and stuff like that. And the thing I always share with clients or people I'm working with or on podcast interviews is the example of a child. Like, are those relational ways to deal with a child who is throwing a tantrum? So, like, take a child. I, I'm the mother of a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. When when she's having a, a tantrum of some kind, should I lock her in a closet and ignore her and pretend she doesn't exist? No, Absolutely. that's called child abuse. <laughs> should I placate her every need and just like, oh, it's okay, honey. Like, here's a lollipop. It's, it's okay. Well, I mean, yeah, in the short term, maybe that's going to do something, but I'm not actually teaching her emotional resilience or the impact of her behavior on others. I'm letting her control everything if I go to placate mode. And should I attack her? Should I berate her and tell her to shut up and, you know, tell her that I'm going to kick, kick her ass if she does, you know, it's like, well, then we're back into child abuse. And here's right. the really, the really hard thing to reconcile. We, we behave how we do with fear often because of how we were treated. And none of us want to be treated that way. And if what we do in our lives is practice abuse, unfortunately, we are becoming abusers. If how you relate to your fear is to tell it to shut up, to go away, if you call it names like monster or gremlin, you know, it's just perpetuating abuse. It's still getting into this like fighting mentality. And the reality is that fear is just a wound. And and then fear is really afraid of further wounding. That's all it's trying to do. When fear tells you that you're going to, if you send that pitch, they're just going to laugh at it. Why bother? 
Mm-hmm. Fear is just, just telling you things with very poor communication um, to try to keep you from being hurt. So what we need to do is we need to start understanding it. And this should not be misconstrued as we just say kumbaya and we're like, oh yeah, fear, it's all good. Just whatever you want to say. Even if you tell me that I'm lousy and lame, it's all good. You're just fearing your wound. It's like, no, with my five-year-old, if she were to kick me or call me stupid or something like that, there would be a boundary there. And the boundary would be, you know, I want to talk to you. I want to hear what it is you have to say. You need to take a time out to breathe. We both probably do. It's actually not okay to kick. It's actually not okay to hit. And these approaches to working with your own personal fear are actually very valuable. So the ability to notice when your fear is coming up and have some way of responding that's along the lines of, hey, fear, I hear what you're saying, and I actually do want to know what it is you're trying to say, but you can't call me pathetic. You can't call me stupid. You can't call me a loser. That doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that you're saying to understand fear, to really embrace it and to invite it in. And I know that that can be such a scary thing because you're inviting something that you think is unwanted. But I have found that when I do invite my fear in and I'm kind of like the gentle observer and I'm not judgmental and I don't, I just really invite it in and acknowledge its presence. I actually find a lot of intuition and things that I actually do want for my life within that fear. Because sometimes I say this with like jealousy and envy and any of those negative emotions it's there for a reason and it's trying to tell you something. And oftentimes it's trying to point you in the direction of what you do want versus, you know, the direction of what you don't want. It's like when you know what you don't want, you also know what you do want. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that you said that. I mean, you know, this philosophy about fear is basic Buddhist psychology. Um, you know, you could, you could read similar threads if anybody here you know, reads and loves as I do. Pema Chodron, um, When Things Fall Apart was just a, a wonderful book. It has such a scary title, <laughs> but I promise it's a wonderful book. Um, and it, it's really about that humanity. And I, I love how, I love, I love it when the, the kind of self-help world and the research worlds come together. And I loved finding research that was supportive um, in looking at, at dialectical behavior therapy, for instance, or narrative therapy, that positive self-regard starts with positive self-talk. And none of these modalities are talking about positive affirmations, however. Mm-hmm. None of these modalities are saying stick cotton in your ears and cover over your eyes. La, 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 I can't hear you. I am love and light and I'm going to be a millionaire tomorrow and have multiple orgasms and my life is perfect. Like, it, like that's not what any of these modalities are saying. What they're saying is this very um, spacious is the word that comes to mind, like this space to just be human, to be yes. a human being. Like, yes, I'm afraid. I get afraid. I mess up. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of being judged. I'm afraid I'm not enough. That's a big one. I, all those sorts of things under the right circumstances come up for me and I can still move forward in the direction I want to go in. And I'm going to attend to the fear. I'm going to let it know like, Hey, I hear that you're afraid. Can't abuse. 
but I hear that you're afraid and I'm, I'm with you. And so what do we need in order to feel less afraid? And uh, it's, it's the most sane way of, of being able to be real and authentic about the human experience of fear, but not let it take over and keep us from doing the things we want to do that I've ever encountered. Exactly. Oh, exactly. That's so good. And speaking of fear of rejection, so we have a lot of writers and creative entrepreneurs that are in the audience. And I know one of the top fears with regard to putting yourself out there and your creative work out there is the fear of rejection, is the fear of being judged, which, you know, does kind of stem or it it kind of spirals into this fear of not being enough. Like you're not good enough to be a writer or to put the work out there or to say the things that you really want to say. So I know in the courage habit, you mentioned several common fear patterns. Will you describe what those are so that we can recognize them when they pop up? (laughs) Yes, totally. Um, So four very common fear patterns would be, and we all do all of them. It's just that depending on timing or context, um, or you know, just who you are, one of them usually hooks you more than the rest of them. They are perfectionism, pretty self-explanatory, always overachieving, trying to do it right. Um, perfectionism, by the way, not about necessarily trying to be better than other people. I once heard, I think Elizabeth Gilbert say perfectionism is about trying to be beyond judgment. Maybe it was Brene Brown. Ooh, I could be wow. mixing those two. But when I heard that, it really resonated for me because I had never been an overachiever because I wanted to be better than everybody else. I had always been an overachiever to try to outrun people's judgment. So perfectionism, (laughs) uh, people pleasing, um, in the book, I called it martyrdom, but I actually think people pleasing is the word that feels just more resonant these days. So, you know, also pretty self-explanatory, always putting other people's needs ahead of your own, Moms get caught in this big, 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 getting really guilty about if I don't show up in a certain way for my kid, they'll miss out. They'll be damaged forever. Those are a lot of fear stories that can hit. Um, Pessimism, which is that kind of like, womp, womp, what's the point? Not going to work out anyway. Um, Pessimism in particular, I encourage everyone to try to find that place because pessimism is the one that people often hesitate to claim the most because they don't want to be accused of whining or wallowing. And Uh it's like really important to give ourselves compassion around the pessimism because pessimism is hard. It's painful. It hurts. And then there's self-sabotage. And that's like the two steps forward, one step back. And really all of these are some form of self-sabotage, but I thought it deserved its own category because it's the shiny object syndrome. It's cleaning your house when you don't (laughs) want to look at a a hard thing to do. It's being avoidant, numbing out, you know, things like that. So that's why I, I bring that up as its own separate category, because it's very specific, the ways that we procrastinate or try to avoid. Yes. And being aware of those is so important because now when I start cleaning and then I move on to the next cleaning activity and the next cleaning activity, I'm very quickly now able to recognize there's something that I want to be doing, but I'm, I'm putting it off because I'm avoiding it. Or there's some kind of feeling there that I haven't really addressed or looked at, or there's some kind of fear there that I haven't invited in. 
So yeah, yeah, I love that you say that. It's so great that like like the awareness about the pattern is an important first step because you know, I can talk about like the what the research indicated about how we create courageous habits and it's very tempting for people to want to just jump to that. Oh, okay, I've been afraid. Ooh, tell me, tell me, what are the what are the four-part processes of the courage habit? I'll just do that. And it's like, but if you don't take a moment to look at the fear patterns, then they trip you up over and over without your even realizing it. And then you never get to the part where you get to practice the the tools that really bolster your courage. Right, right. Oh, and I know that um, a lot of my listeners, so they tend to lose momentum with their creative projects. Like say they're writing a book um, because there's this sense of overwhelm that they feel when they're trying to tackle such a large project. So I know in your book, you also write that there are four specific behaviors that are backed by research that we can start practicing in order to live with more courage. So to maybe not not feel so overwhelmed when we're trying to work on a big project. Um, could you tell us more about what those behaviors are and how we can start implementing them? Totally. Um, and I, but I do have to say, it was a very funny thing to be a writer with a book deadline for my editor <laughs> and like writing about these things, but also like, it was very meta. I was like writing about them, but oh. also experiencing them. Like, you know, the, I, I was feeling the overwhelmed too when I was, when I was writing the courage habit. Um, so the four parts of the courage habit process, and I can, I'll, I'll list them and then I'll, I'll break down each one and I'll I'll try to give an example of, of maybe thinking back to my own book writing days, like how I was applying this. So they are access the body, listen without attachment to the fear, reframe fears, limiting stories, and reach out and create community. And you could do one of them. You could do all of them. They're not a linear. You don't have to do them as steps. They're a process. Of course, the more of them you you utilize, the more helpful it is for your life. And the more often you utilize them, the more those responses. So, you know, feeling the cue of fear and instead of cleaning your house, going into hold on a minute, let me reach out and create community by calling a friend or hold on a minute, let me access the body. Those become your default ways of being. And of course, those lead to those longer term rewards that we want. So when I was writing The Courage Habit and and doing that while, you know, running my company, which has, you know, uh, 10, 13 different contractors all over the United States, um, you know, and doing podcasts and doing podcast interviews and securing the endorsements. And there was one part of the writing process that was very hairy because there were, you know, three, you know, chapters were due in batches. And so I would have three chapters due that were brand new. And then I'd start working on the next three, but then the editor would get the edits back to me on the first three while I was still writing the next three. So oh that God. was like a, a kind of crazy time. And it was very much like, okay, I feel completely overwhelmed right now. What do I need to do? And accessing the body, um, that's my first go-to. I think all of us need uh, way more time to cry. 
Oh like, my gosh. I love that. You just, I just spent, I'm not even, <laughs> not even a joke. I spent probably 10 straight minutes this morning in my meditation because I was really, really connected to everything. Um, just sobbing. Yes. I was just sobbing and it wasn't necessarily like, it wasn't good crying. It wasn't bad crying, but I was just, I say this all the time. Now this year I have cried more in my life than I ever have throughout like my whole entire life. Yes. <laughs> I have a blog post at your courageous life called conscious crying. Mm-hmm. And it's about that. It's, it's like, whenever I start to notice that I feel really pent up and overwhelmed and agitated in the same way that you might set a timer for a meditation practice for breathing and just sit and breathe, watch your breath, come back to that compassionate awareness, all of that. I, I will do that for crying. And, and sometimes actually, by the way, it's, it's screaming into a towel or hitting a pillow. Like I, I really believe that there's this way that we expect something of ourselves as adults around emotion regulation that is dehumanizing. Now, do we need to regulate our emotions and not like mow down the per the person who like got in front of us in a, in a car <laughs> without turning on their turn signal? Well, of course we do. Right. So that toddler brain, we do need to outgrow, but we also need to recognize that like crying is not a pathology. It, it means that there's an excess of something pent up. Crying is release. Sometimes yeah. anger is release. So accessing the body can look lots of different ways. Um, as long as it's done with the intent of accessing the body, screaming into a towel, crying, sure, standard, regular breathing meditation, um, self-pleasure, if that's your, your jam, um, yeah, whatever's got you accessing the body. Um, I, I trained for a half Ironman the year I wrote my book, my first half Ironman. Um, and I, I, I will totally say, I, I don't know how anyone does it without a good cardio. Now I'm a, a CrossFit person and that CrossFit, you know, appointment that I have with myself at four o'clock, just about every day, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, if I have a really rough day, it's just like, I am picking up those barbells and I'm slamming them down and it feels good. It's like, <laughs> I, 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 I can, I can get back to clear thinking again. And that's the hardest part, right? When you're sitting down, you're writing a book big project, have a deadline. You can't think clearly. And you don't know if when your head is telling you this sucks, if that's your fear or if that's some other voice that's actually trying to tell you, eh, that's not the direction you want to go in. Um, spoiler alert. If it's saying this sucks, it's probably fear. And if it's saying in, eh, that's not the direction you want to go in. It's probably a helpful internal editor. Right. So I would access the body a lot. Um, listen without attachment. I kind of just gave the example. So you're listening without attaching to what your fear says. You hear it, but you don't take it as truth. And if somebody walked up to you right now, now I've, I've seen your Instagram. So you, I see have the lovely color thing going on. So this example, <laughs> you do, I didn't see blue though. So I'll give this example. You know, if somebody walked up to you on the street and they were clearly drunk you'd uh-huh. be, and, and they were like, you have blue hair. Ew. You wouldn't be like, oh my God, do I have blue hair? No, like that thought would not even enter your head because you'd be like, that's, I, I don't have blue hair. You would hear the words, but you wouldn't assign any power to them. You wouldn't attach to them as true. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to do this thing of not avoiding our fear or placating it or attacking it, then we need to listen. That's how we understand. So then we get into the third part 
reframing limiting stories. So we need to listen to fear, but again, it's not like throw glitter in the air and fear can do whatever it wants. It's listening with healthy boundaries, which means reframing that limiting story. Okay, got it. Uh, fear says that this chapter sucks. I, I, I'm open to hearing what you have to say, but like, you're going to have to get more specific and say it in a way that's respectful. What is it about this chapter that's not working? You know, it's reframing that limiting story into, okay, so I think that this chapter isn't really focused enough. And so we need to work on focus. All right, there we go. Now we're, you know, we're not going into positive affirmations. This chapter's the best of the whole book, which just feels like lying to yourself. <laughs> we're going into a reframe. And this is also, I loved this, like cognitive behavioral therapy, narrative therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, multiple modalities out there that actually prescribe, hey, for clients who have serious anxiety or depression, you need to be reframing your limiting stories. And then the fourth part of the courage habit process is reaching out and creating community. And that is anything from tuning into, you know, like this podcast episode, like maybe, you know, people haven't met Kristen, but like you've met her in a sort of a way by, by having listened, you've become part of this community or literally joining your community and getting the support from you as you're, as they're growing their businesses, you know, reading books. Um, and then of course the harder thing to do, although I strongly suggest it, you know, it's like sending the text to the friend and saying, I'm having a really hard day where every voice in my head is saying that I suck and I can't write anything. Mm -hmm. Can I call you in five minutes? You know, like that is actually a really courageous and, uh, you know, boost to your emotional resilience. This is how you develop emotional resilience. That is so true. And I cannot, oh, the feeling of community, having that community, it is so important. And I think sometimes we can take it for granted or I kind of go into superwoman mode where I'm like, I can do it all myself. Like I, I am superwoman and I've got all this and I don't need anyone's help or support. And I'm like, you're not, you're not supposed to do life alone. Like we're not supposed to just try to figure everything out on our own. Like a a large part of, I don't know, life and everything that it entails is just finding that community of people who really get you. And I find more and more as, as I continue to record podcasts and have people like you on the show and just keep creating content, it's resonating more and more with the people that I've always, you know, wanted to attract into my life and have as my tribe and a part of my community. And so, but the thing is, if you're not putting yourself out there, if you're not putting that if you're not putting you out there, the true, real, authentic you, then those people can never find you because it's not out there. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, community is so huge and it's, it's like, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, I mentioned I'm the director of a life coach training program. And most people, when they think of something like that, they think, okay, cool. So like I sit down and I like go through the lessons and do some homework and then kind of like, you know, pull together some final exam type requirements to prove that I have the skill set. And yeah, for sure. We do, we do a lot of those things, but the community part, like we push community in our program and 
it's like you are you are swapping sessions with other people. You are getting into five-person calls where it's with your mastermind. You're getting onto smaller calls, which is 10 to 15 people. You're talking with myself and the other facilitators. And it, it you know, we talk a lot about community and the importance of community. We even talk about how people practice trust and what the behaviors are that create trust and the behaviors that create mistrust, unfortunately. Um, because we want to be really transparent that like it's not just about the skill set. Like you're doing life and you've got this, this incredible set of, of like heart centered people around you. So show up for this community, be visible, post something. When somebody else is going through a tough time, let them know that you, you know, you can't fix it for them, but that you see them and you're here and that they're not alone. All those things combined really start to you know, just bolster where people are at. And, you know, it makes it so much more fun. And one of my favorite pieces of research that I ended up finding was around community and goal setting. It was research that looked at um, the effect of people involving community in their goals as part of, I believe, like a walkathon, that type of thing. And, wow. for, you know, so, so people who had compassionate goals that served something greater than themselves that they were involving the community with versus those who had goals that were just purely individualistic, like I'm over here and I'm going to go, I don't know, run the marathon or do the, do the event myself. And what they found was that not only did the people who had the more compassionate goals and the more community orientation to that goal, not only were they having way more fun along the way, they reported higher satisfaction, they also were more likely to actually achieve their goal. So this idea that we're supposed that. to do it on our own that often gets pushed again by this machismo um, I think of it as machismo or like a stoicism on, on extra steroids. Stoicism has some good points, but there, there's some parts of it that just like get taken to another level that I don't align with myself. And the community piece is, is that we've got to have community and Hey, extra boost. I found research, not necessarily relevant to courage, but you'll live longer if you have a good community. You'll have a better immune system if you have a good community. Like there's all kinds of benefits to having a great community. It's all, all good things. And especially as writers, I feel like, you know, writing can feel like a very solitary activity at times yeah. because it's just you in front of the computer and um, yeah, you just kind of live in your head a little bit. That's why it's so important to make sure that the thoughts that you're thinking and the way that you're speaking to yourself, like if you wouldn't say whatever you're saying to yourself, to a friend, to a loved one, then what in the world are you doing saying it to yourself? Because that's, that's where we live is in our minds and in our thoughts. So what we're telling ourselves every single day, that's the reality that we're living in. And what's really cool is that you have you have the opportunity and can make the decision to just reach for a better feeling thought, something that makes you happy, something that makes you feel excited. Um, you can reach out to people for support and accountability and yeah, just really keep that sense of that sense of community thriving. Well, and I love too, that you can use any of these courage habit tools at any point. So it's like, Yes. If if you are if you're having a bad inner critic kind of a day where it's really heavy and you're like okay 
I'm going to reach out and create community. And then the voice comes in with, oh, well, that's just so clingy and needy. and eh. It's like, okay, let me use a different tool. Let me access the body. Maybe I need to go cry. Maybe I need to go take a walk. Or maybe I need to reframe that voice. Or maybe I need to just sit and listen without attachment and then call the friend. So it's like, it's not just one thing. People who are more emotionally resilient have made it a habit, a lifestyle, to prioritize doing the things in the face of fear and challenges and bad days that put them in the best possible mindset. It's not about being all glitzy and forever happy. Um, that might not be possible for everybody. But um, I think you can get pretty darn close. And I, I got to say, there was a real feeling. I, I definitely had a lot of you know moments of, whoa, what's going on here with The Courage Habit? Because writing my first book with a publisher, with deadlines, all those things, it was outside my comfort zone and it was new. But it, it, it was a... It, it was overwhelmingly a feeling of, and I'm not a sports person. I don't know why this was my metaphor, but it was a feeling of like, I've got the ball and I'm running it down to the end zone and nothing is in my way. Like this is a privilege, an honor, a joy, the fulfillment of a childhood dream. And it feels as amazing as everyone said it would. And, you know, I'm this, this is just, this is mine and I'm going to own it. And there's no way in hell fear is going to take this dream that I've had since I was a little girl of writing a book and, and crap on it. <laughs> no, we're going to work together fear. And I'm, I'm going to look at the places where, you know, my fear was afraid for very real reasons, but it's not going to be in the driver's seat. Yes. Oh, that's so, so important. And can you let everyone know where they can connect with you and learn more? Sure. Yeah. So Kate Swoboda, also known as Kate Courageous. You can find me at yourcourageouslife.com and at team C E uh, sorry, team CLCC.com. Uh, CLCC stands for Courageous Living Coach Certification. I'm on Facebook as Your Courageous Life. I am on Instagram as Kate Courageous. Really, if you just type Kate Courageous, you'll definitely find me all over the place. So <laughs> Perfect. Well, I will leave all of that information in the show notes. So for those of you listening, make sure you go connect with Kate on social media, check out her website, and don't forget to pick up a copy of her book, The Courage Habit. Thank you so much for your time today, Kate. It was such a pleasure speaking with you and we truly appreciate all of your insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you again. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you love this episode, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss anything. For more beyond this podcast, including information on my YouTube channel and webinars, visit me at thatsmarthustle.com. And for daily inspiration and writing advice, come hang out with me on Instagram at author Kristen Martin. I'll talk with you all again very soon. Cheers.